Luke chapter 19. Go ahead and turn there with me. Luke chapter 19. And we're going to read in verse 41 down to 44. Now this section is pretty familiar. Uh, when we talk about Palm Sunday. But I want to go a little bit further down than we would typically be for today. We're going to get past the palms. We're going to get past the praise. We're going to see a moment that I believe can speak. I know this week as I've been prepping and praying, it's been speaking to me. And I hope that as we kind of continue on this idea of asking God to fix our sight and the sense of where we are in our walk and our journey with Christ and raising kids and leading our families, that God will speak to us maybe about another place in our life that we need to be visibly reminded of what's going on around us. And so Luke chapter 19, let's read verse 41. It says this. It says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. It says, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not not know the time of your visitation. Church, let's pray this morning. Father, Lord, we just come to you as as broken people in desperate need of fixing. God, even in our salvation, for those here this morning that have put their faith in you, Father, that Lord, we thank you that every day, every moment, every minute, you are saving us you are completing us, that you are moving us in the direction that you've called us to. And Lord, in the midst of of all our weaknesses, in the midst of all the things that we struggle through, Lord, the things that each and every one of us, maybe Lord, somebody even this week, maybe in this room that has just met some extreme hardships, some extreme opposition in their walk with you or just in their the, the life that you've called them to, whether that's in parenting or in, in marriage or in, in, in work, whatever it might be. Father God, we recognize that the world around us and the world we walk in every day is is broken. Lord, in the missing piece of all of those things is you. And so, Father, I pray this morning as we lean in in our humility, laying aside our pride, laying aside the thoughts in our mind and say we've got it all together. We have all the answers within ourselves. Father God, let us find answers in you this morning. God, let us be honest with ourselves. Let us evaluate who you are and what it is you can do with us through this text today. Father, we love you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So I don't know about you, but I'm sure if you spent any time at the fair this weekend, you're probably either sunburnt or you're sick or you're tired. And listen... We all kind of are in that little uh, little little hole this morning, but man, I really believe as we celebrate this Palm Sunday, you know, Palm Sunday is uh, a celebration of Jesus entering into Jerusalem and the people come and, and right before the section that we've read, the people come and they're, they're worshiping, you know, Hosanna in the highest, praise the King who is coming. All these things are happening here in Luke 19. 
You know, the triumphal entry, as, uh, as it's called in your Bibles, as you know, a lot of you, if you have uh, headings above certain sections. And, you know, as they cry king, as they cry king, we know how the story goes on. You know, and so for me this morning when I was thinking about how, what, how, how do we navigate Palm Sunday in regards to what God is wanting to maybe tell us about something in particular that are uh, a way that the way we view things or the sight that we have about our relationship with Christ or how we navigate uh, our Christian life, it brought me past all those things to this section here that does not feel triumphant, right? It doesn't feel happy. It doesn't feel like a celebration when in reality this is a better view of the, the, the situation than really any of the rest of it because we know the story. They praise Him. They worship Him. They lay the palms and their, 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 their blankets. They lay all these things down. They're welcoming this King, this King of the Jews that's coming in. But we know that not long after this, about uh, three four chapters down the road, they're going to be crying, crucify Him, right? They're going to be crying, crucify Him. And so this morning, when I was thinking about how to, you know, I don't always throw a sub, subtitle on it, but this morning I felt like there was a subtitle that was there to kind of really bring us into the idea of where I want us to be this morning, and it's this, to welcome the right king in. Welcome the right king in. Because the king they thought they were welcoming in wasn't the king that was there. The king that they thought they wanted, the king that they thought they needed was not the king that God provided. And as we know, even as we think back into you know, the time of David and Saul and all of that, the king that man wants isn't the king that we need. You know, because the king we want typically looks like every other king. But our king is unique. Our king came in on a donkey, right? And they expected him to come in on a mighty steed, you know, running through the, the, the streets with the sword in hand, you know, this mighty, like, uh, army, you know, going to lead a, an army against uh, Rome and, and, and reclaim everything that was theirs, but that was not the king that they had. And so this morning, as we kind of get into this, the, 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 the thought that I want to radiate through our minds is welcoming the right king in. Father God, help us to see, fix the sight that we need to see the right king in our life. You know, and so for us, you know, when we see this in this text, we know that not long after this, they're, they're calling out for his crucifixion. And so what we know is as they're saying, here is the king. When we read here in verse 41, Jesus weeping, they're worshiping him. And what is he doing? He's weeping. Why? Because he knows that they've welcomed the wrong king into their hearts the wrong idea of what all this is about. Because he knew that they called him king, but he was not their king. Because he wasn't the king that they were calling for. You know, and, and when you think about battle, when you think about everything that you're going into, people depend on a king, right? They depend on a king for protection. They depend on a king for that, that, that lordship, for ruling, for situating things, for making decisions, for setting the people up for victory, for reclaiming land that was once theirs, or conquering the enemy that comes against them. You know, and under a good king's protection, the enemy does not gain ground. Under a good king's protection, the enemy does not claim their grounds. And so, 
What I want us to see here this morning is a couple of things that happen when we don't welcome the right king in. When we've made something or someone else king, Lord, you know, because those things really go hand in hand. What happens? What do we miss? What is hidden from us when we welcome the wrong king in? And I think there's two things that this text shows us. And I think it's, it, it's very applicable into our Christian life because I believe that these are things that if they're not on the forefront of our minds, then we will misstep or we will take the wrong direction as we navigate this long journey that we have as Christians. And I believe that in our pursuit of these particular things, that it guides our path for me as I raise my children, for you as you raise your children, as you navigate your relationship with your spouse, as you navigate relationship with grandkids, as you navigate relationships with your circle of influence that you interact with day after day. Maybe it's at work, maybe it's at school, whatever it might be. And so there's a couple things that as the text, as Dr. Luke kind of lays out here in Luke chapter 19, some things that are missed when we welcome the wrong king. And the first thing is this, is that we miss the peace. Not like the peace of pizza, but the peace, shalom within us. Because that is something God wants his people to have, is peace, this very special, unique type of peace that nothing else in this world can provide us with. We can spend our whole lives chasing after, craving after the things that this world gives us, but there's nothing here that provides us shalom or peace the way that God provides. And so when we welcome the wrong king in, when we welcome the wrong king in, we miss the peace that God is trying to provide for us. And so he says here in, uh, in verse 41, let's read that. It says, as he drew near and he saw the city. So imagine, you know, I kind of imagine that Jesus is coming over this hill, over this, this, this lifted area. And as he views out over the, the, the city that he's approaching, Jerusalem, his people, his chosen people that God has protected, that God has provided, that God has even punished at times and, and disciplined for, their, for their, uh, their disobedience. And so as Jesus is coming over and he knows what's happening, he knows what's going to happen, he knows what he's come to do, he knows what he's come to do for his people. As he looks out over the city, his city, his people, as he draws near, what does it say? It says he wept over it. You know, there's so much here to be revealed about the nature of our Savior. So much here. You know, and there's only, only two other times, there's, there's two times in the Bible where we see Jesus weep in this regard. And in reality, it's two very similar situations in, in a certain degree. The first time as uh, his brother, uh, not physical brother, but his brother in Christ, Lazarus, had died you know, in that moment, we see that Jesus wept. And then as Jesus is coming into this, uh, into Jerusalem, he weeps again. And, you know, and, and so when the Bible speaks about Jesus weeping, something that we can see here is the intensity of a personal friendship. We see the intensity of a relationship where Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel, weeping for his people, weeping for the brokenness that is happening, that will happen. You know, a lot of times, and, and we very much have to see and, and ha need to see because it's what our whole faith is built off of is the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God in that moment. But also the humanity of Christ, that beautiful com combination that only God can do. Because remember, for, for our sins to be forgiven, it had to be 
a man to pay that price, but it had to be a perfect man. And no human man could live that perfect life. Only a God-man can. And so, in this moment, we see the God of the universe reveal a love for His people that is unmatched. A friendship, a passion. And not only that, a love for his country, a sense of patriotism for this this nation that he has blessed, this nation that he is protecting, this nation that he is leading. This group of people that God loves because they are his people that he has set apart. Just an, an awesome illustration of the nature of who God is. But it also reveals this. It reveals that Jesus knew the true superficiality of the people's hearts. He knew where they were. He knew their heart's desires. He knew what was to come. He knew that even though they were worshiping Him, even though He knew that they were praising Him, He was not the King they were welcoming in. And that not long after this, that they would be crying out against Him. Jeremiah 13, 17 kind of speaks of this moment a little bit um, or in moments like this. And Jeremiah 13, 17 says, But if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. This is what, Je- this is what Jesus is seeing of his people at this moment. He's seeing the captivity that lies ahead of them. In a lot of ways, I believe this is exactly what he sees when his, his friend Lazarus is lying in the tomb knowing, knowing that he will raise from the dead. But seeing and experiencing in that moment, even before the crucifixion, knowing the brokenness and the captivity that mankind will be in. Today, in a sense, we live in a captivity to our flesh. We live in a captivity that draws us to lesser things than God. We have a captivity that we navigate and and, and as a Christian that we even give ourselves over to in this pursuit of peace. When in reality, the peace that we're searching for, we can only find in Christ. And so, what we see here is as Jesus is weeping, he's understanding, he's having, he's, he's, he's having an understanding of the judgment to come. He's having an understanding of the judgment to come. And so, what this has to show us, for one though, for us to understand, that's very important. That Jesus here, he showed the heart of God, how even in judgment... Even when judgment must be pronounced, it is never done with joy. I mean, God's word even says in the Old Testament, he says, it is not my desire that any should perish. You know, a lot of times, especially people on the outside of Christianity, they believe that, well, God enjoys to punish people. God enjoys the fact that people go to hell. That God enjoys the fact that people are separated from Him. That God must enjoy the fact when people hurt. That God enjoys the fact when people suffer. That He's like some, some kid with a magnifying glass in the sky just burning up ants on the ground. But man, that is not the God we serve. And we see that in this moment that even though surely judgment was to come to Jerusalem several years after this, an intense judgment by the, the nation of Rome as they come through and they begin to take over. And we'll talk about it a little bit more as we move further. This impending judgment to come on God's people as the Roman Empire moves in. 
And not only that, but an eternal judgment for those who would deny Him. Those who would cry out against Him. That He weeps for that. There is no joy in the heart of God for those who turn away from Him. I don't believe that. And I don't believe Scripture speaks to that. And for us as people, when we're evangelizing, that's a beautiful truth that we can present. Like, hey, you've, re- you've rejected God, but God has not rejected you in the sense of that it breaks the heart of God, not in a very humanistic way. I don't like when people try to make God out to be a human because He's not. He's a deity. He is the creator of the universe. But our God is connected to His creation. We are all, believer or not believer, created in the image of God. And so as the image of God, God has care and concern for His creation. And for a creation that turns against Him, the Bible says in, in, in here, there's a sense of weeping. And sometimes the Bible uses a, a type of language called anthropomorphic language. It's, it's to attribute human characteristics to something or someone who isn't human. And so God not being human, this is the best way that they can explain the heart and the character of God. Not that God is literally weeping, but the fact that God is grieved. God does not like the fact or the idea that His people will willingly turn away from Him or people will turn away from Him and accept in return eternal separation from Him. And so within that, the Bible says that Jesus wept in this moment. And why did He weep? It says, would that you... And I love this phrase right here. Would that you, even you, had known the things that make for peace. He says, even you. You know, it almost comes with this idea as if he's speaking to these people like, regardless of everything that's happened up to this point, regardless of anything you've done, regardless of how you even think in this moment, even you could know the things of peace. What he's showing us is that there is no one, there is not any single person born of man today that is unable to know the things of God. There is no one that God, he says, even you could know. You aren't exempt. None of us is exempt are too far away from being able to know the peace that God wants to give us. That God wants to provide to His people. That we have the ability to have this knowledge. And He says, to have this knowledge of the things that make for peace or the conditions of peace. He says, you can know those things that lead you to peace. You can know those things that draw you in when you welcome the right King in. When Christ is the King on the throne in your life in the kingdom that you live in, in the kingdom of your home. When Christ is that king, you can know the conditions of peace and experience it. But like Jesus says, the second half of that verse, he says, but they're hidden from your eyes. Our our sight is, is, is blurry. It's been clouded by other things going on. It's been, it's, it's, we've been distracted by other things we're being drawn towards. And so he's telling us that these things that make for peace, these conditions are for peace or or, or peace that bring us to this place and and reveal to us how to experience it. John 16.33, Jesus said this. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. 
He says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so there's that pursuit, right? There's that, the, the vision that we have, the, the, the gaze, the sight that we have, that when it gets distorted, when we get distracted, he says here, he says, if your pursuit for peace is in the world, he says, in the world you're going to find tribulation. In the world you're going to find struggle. In the world you're going to find emptiness. In the world you're going to find momentary bits of satisfaction that only get us slightly over the hump. But constantly having to come back for more. That the world provides for us a well that will surely run dry. But what Jesus invites us to is himself. And what does he call himself? The well that will never run dry. The well that is bubbling over that is overfilling cups that God is providing and giving us through His Son, Jesus. And then Psalm chapter 4, verse 8. He says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Do you hear the confidence of David in that moment? The confidence of having his eyes fixed and set, understanding the assignment, right? That Christ is king. That God is king. And that it's in that, that it's a, it's, a, it's a rest. It's a provision that nothing else can provide to the point where he says that I will lie down. Not only will I lie down and rest, but I will sleep. I don't know about you, but if I know something's happening, I can't sleep, right? I mean, you know, even just here recently, we've had some weather issues and the anticipation that... We might get blown away or if you're staying at home and there's a hurricane. I mean, I don't know about you, but you don't sleep like you're, you're, you know, any little noise, any little sound. You're like, I mean, we lost a trampoline not too long ago. I mean, the last time there was a tornado. So I'm like, oh, the trampoline's on the house. Like it's gone. We've lost it. I mean, you know, I put it together. I've done all this stuff and I don't know if I can put another one together. I'm telling you. But when we have this anticipation, this, this restlessness within us, we will never be able to settle into those spaces that God has called us to. Even in the, the work and the things that God has called us to do, I don't believe that we can ever settle into our roles as people until we are seeking and pursuing the peace that God has for us. I mean, I know for me, and in the ebbs and flows of my life, that I have been a very poor husband at times or a poor father at times mainly because of my inability to find peace and stillness to be able to settle into the role that God's called me to. We will never be able to settle into the roles that God, that God has called us to until we can find that place of peace that he has called us to. And he says in verse 42, he says, but now they are hidden from your eyes, but now they are hidden. Almost communicates this idea that at some point they weren't hidden. At some point you could see it. And so for a lot of people, even as Christians, I believe we find ourselves at these points where the things that we once knew of God, we think about now and they seem hidden to us. And within that, we're in this constant kind of struggle, this uphill run to find that again. And a lot of times it's because if we'll truly evaluate, then what we've done is we've allowed the wrong king in. That is not Christ the king. That maybe it's, maybe it's me the king. Maybe it's comfort the king. Maybe it's convenience the king. Hey, maybe it's my kids the king, right? It's very easy for us to find ourselves in those places like we've said before, even if it's things that aren't inherently bad, but the moment we make them king is the moment we lose sight of that peace that only God can provide. And then the second last thing this morning is this. 
Not only do we miss the peace, but we miss the problem. We miss the problem. We miss the enemy. We miss the things that will inherently come against us if we're not aware. Verse 43 into 44, he says, Your enemies will set up a barricade around you. They will surround you. They will hem you in on every side and tear you down. You know, right here, Jesus is speaking about a very specific situation that will happen. In 70 AD, a king, uh, a ruler of Rome, will, will begin an attack on Jerusalem to take over Jerusalem. This, this king's name at the time is Titus, not the same Titus that, that we read about in the Bible, but a different Titus. This, this king leads an army up against Jerusalem because he wants Jerusalem. And so Jesus has this in mind when he's speaking about this situation. He's speaking about a specific situation. He says, your enemies will set up a barricade around you. They will surround you. They will hem you in on every side and they will tear you down. Isaiah 44, 18, it says, they know, they know not, nor do they discern. It's talking about the people of God. For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see in their hearts, so they cannot understand. When we've lost sight of who God is and who Christ is in our lives, then our vision gets blurred. We lose sight of the problem. We miss the problems and the effects that they have in our lives and the things that they do. And so what Isaiah is speaking of there, kind of prophesying about the children of Israel and the things that they will, will kind of navigate, is he's speaking about their inability to retain knowledge about who God is and have applicable wisdom about what God is doing. You know, in the month of May, something that we've talked about doing, we've talked about, and it's kind of hard to do, but I think it'll be a cool thing from the beginning of May to the end of the May, going through the book of Proverbs. Because something very specific about the book of Proverbs, which is a book of wisdom, is that it, it instructs us on very applicable things. I mean, it's unbelievable the way that that book lays out. And so, but what the main focus of the book of Proverbs is, the book of Proverbs is about obtaining wisdom, pursuing wisdom to have the knowledge that we need to discern the way we should go. And so what happens when we lose sight of the king of who Christ is and what he's doing, and we begin to miss the problem then we begin to lose that ability to have the knowledge that we need to discern the steps that we need to take as people, leading and, 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 and living out the life that Christ has called us to. And what happens is when we lose sight of the problem, the enemy begins to move in. But just like the, the, the king in Rome, or the, the Caesar in Rome, Titus, the way he went about attacking Jerusalem is very similar to the way, and if we're honest with ourselves, the way the enemy attacks us. Because the way the enemy attacked, the way Titus attacked Jerusalem is he did this. He didn't rush them, right? He didn't just send in a, a barrage of men, just overrun the city. That's not what he did. The first thing that this king did is he surrounded the city. And what he did by surrounding the city is he began cutting off all the supplies that the city needed to thrive. And not only that... But the, he waited until he knew, he knew that there was a specific time of the year when as many Jews as would come would be gathered within the city. And so you know what he did? That's the time of year that he chose to attack them. That's the time of year he chose to surround them and keep them from li uh, leaving was during the, uh, the, the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And so he knew that during this time, 
during this time that we're living in right now, during the Passover season, the celebration of God liberating His people from Egypt, that during this time, He knew that the most Jews that I could possibly attack are going to be all in one area. Listen, the enemy is cunning. The enemy knows the opportunity. And you know what? He knows the opportunity to have the most bang for his buck when it comes to you and me. He knows the things that we struggle with. He knows that moment that he can catch us. He knows that moment when everything seems together. And if we've lost sight of the problem, then just like this, what happened? He said, this says that the enemy, that they surrounded Jerusalem. And not only that, not only did they in a sense, isolate them from the rest of the nations around them because they surrounded them and they wouldn't let people leave and they wouldn't let people come in. They wouldn't let supplies come in or anything like that. Not only that, but then they began to build, they began to build embankments, barricades around the city. So even further isolating them from everybody. Does this sound familiar? Doesn't this sound how the enemy works in our life? Not only does he begin to make us feel like we're on our own, begin to isolate us, but then he begins to make us truly alone when he's removed us so far from the brothers and sisters in our life that can encourage us in Christ, can remind us that Christ is king. What does he do? He begins to cut off all the supplies around us to make us feel like I'm disconnected from God. I'm disconnected from everybody. I don't know what's going on within me. I don't feel like I have the resources in my life to find myself back to that place that I need to be at where I see Christ as king in my life. The enemy is cunning. The Bible says he's like a roaring lion looking for who he may devour. And how does a lion attack? A lion doesn't just take off running. Because listen, there's a lot of animals that are, that are quicker than a lion. What does a lion do? He blends in, right? He blends in. He finds those spaces and those places and those areas where he can slip himself in and get as close as he can. And then what does he do? Then he pounces. And he attacks. And so this emperor of Rome... He built these embankments. And then over time, what happened? It says that the people gradually began to starve. This is how the enemy works in our life, is he starves us spiritually. This is his warfare in our lives. If we feel spiritually drained, and if we would evaluate our relationship with Christ and see where we are in it, we can guarantee that the enemy has been at work. And you know what? The time at which the enemy begins his work is typically at the peak of where we are spiritually, right? I mean, think about those moments in your Christian life when you feel like you're at your best. Spiritually, I mean, you were maybe, you were reading your Bible, you were praying, you were coming into a space like this and you could just sing with so much joy, with so much happiness in your life. And then what happens? Just like this, the enemy sees that moment and he begins to... Begins to surround. You know, and in a way, you know, because when he initially came, it was only people. And I would, I would even anticipate that the people within the city probably didn't even know initially that there was an army surrounding the city. There was just enough people around just to keep people out and to keep the supplies out. You know, and then in that moment, what I, see, I feel like we see a lot of times even in churches, then people start to feel like, I just don't feel like I'm getting anything out of church anymore. Right? Have you heard those conversations? Have you had that with people? I just don't feel like I'm getting anything out of it. I'm, I'm just 
there's just something about it I'm just missing, you know, and you start to feel like you're, you're missing. There's just something you're not getting. And so you begin to kind of search and look and, you know, and then maybe you go from one thing to the next or one place to the next. And, you know, there's that initial high just because of something different. And then as you kind of settle in and you begin to feel like, ah, I'm just missing something. You know, and a lot of times we want to attribute that to wherever we're attending. But in reality, that's the enemy slowly surrounding us, starving us of the resources that we need. And a lot of, to most of the time, and in reality, the problem isn't necessarily the things around us. The problem is us. There's something we're not doing. There's something that we're not pursuing. Or there's something, there's a problem maybe we're not acknowledging. There's another king on the throne. We've welcomed the wrong king in. And the king that we put on the throne isn't king enough to keep the enemy away. And so what happened? It says the Romans held the city in this, in this way until eventually they started breaking down section by section. They started taking over the city section by section by section until eventually they had full control. That's the way the enemy works in our life. The moment we miss the problem is the moment that the enemy begins to slowly starve us away from and isolate us from the things that God wants to use in our lives. You know, maybe it's our desire to serve. Maybe it's our desire for our spouse. Maybe it's our desire to lead our children. Maybe it's our desire to evangelize or to share with the people around us. I mean, you know, even just thinking about, and, and this is for all of us, you know, even thinking about the inviting someone to church, you know, we probably just think to ourselves, I just, I don't really want to. You know, I just don't feel like it. I don't know if they're going to, you know, whatever. They'll enjoy it. I don't want to risk it. You know, that's, that's the enemy in, in bank, building embankments around us to keep us not only from interacting with the world around us that desperately needs everything that we do here this morning. You know, I mean, in, in whether it's in a coffee shop, whether it's in a, a million dollar building across the street, people need Jesus. It doesn't matter where they get it at. We need to be telling them the gospel, the real gospel. And listen, there are even churches that aren't giving people the real gospel. So people that are giving the real gospel, that's few and far between these days. And as the times get closer and closer to the end, there's going to be fewer and fewer and fewer churches doing what God has called us to do. And so we need to actively be inviting people into the spaces at which God is being proclaimed and the truth is being known. And this isn't a ploy for, for me specifically, but we, or for us in this church, but we need to make sure that people are being in places where they can worship a holy God, the God of the Bible. Because if we don't, what we've allowed is we've allowed the enemy to build embankments around us, and he is not only starving us, but he's isolating us from the effectiveness we can have on the people around us. Because believe me, I'm sure Jerusalem, as big of a nation as this is, they probably had things they exported, so there are things that the people around them aren't getting that they have. That's because what the enemy wants to do is he wants to take what you do have and he wants to distort it and pervert it like he has done with everything. Take it and pervert it and make it into something that benefits him. Rome wanted to take what Jerusalem could do and change it to something that would benefit them. And so... This is how the enemy works. Strategic attacks to isolate, weaken us, control us, and overtake us. But the thing is, is that it's, this isn't a one, one-sided thing, right? This isn't a, a singular domino that falls on its own. This isn't a, a single building that just falls within itself. This isn't a, isn't a tree that falls in an open field. 
without any collateral damage. What does it say in verse 44? It says that he will tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. Church, this is the point of attack. This is the domino effect. The two for one the enemy looks for. He wants, he wants the most bang for his buck, right? He wants the, the most casualty that can be obtained. And so for us, as people, what is, what is our defense against that? The thing we have to do first off is we have to see the problems, whatever that is. We have to see those places within our life with which for us, you know, as men who lead your families, what are those spaces within our life where the enemy is keeping us from being leaders? What is the enemy doing? What is the enemy doing in my life? What is the enemy doing around me? You know, and for all of us as individuals, men and women, you know, what is God doing? I mean, what is the enemy doing to distract me? Where is he building encampments around me? And, 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 and how is he surrounding me, suffers, kind of isolating me from the rest of what God is trying to do? And I, I read this this week and I thought this was a great way to see this. But our best event defense is to view our families as Little platoons in God's army. You know, I know that sounds very like cheesy, but I, I love the idea of this. And that because we have platoons that we're responsible for in this, this fight, I have a platoon that ultimately, first and foremost, I mean, I love the church. I love all of you, but my main responsibility begins with my platoon at home. And so what God has called us to do is he's called us to lead that platoon, to command that platoon. To instruct them, to grow them, to, to, to show them the way to go. I love in Psalm 35, 1 through 3. When he's crying out, the writer here is crying out. He says, contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. You know, it's this call to fight, call to be ready, call to be on the, on the lookout, call to be, be observant of what's going around. You know, something for me as a father that I've constantly had to learn and listen, even dealing with people, you know, as as men who go to work, a lot of times we feel like, well, I go to work, so I come home and then I check out and I you ex we expect the wife that you take care of everything else, you know, and so, you know, the, the idea kind of the, 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 the way that a, a man feels like that we should work is I come home, I've been at work all day, when I come home, I don't want to do anything, I want to sit down on the chair, I want nobody to bother me, I want you to bring me my food, I want to watch my shows I want to go to bed and I want to start the process over again but that I believe with all my heart because I believe that I've maybe I've seen it at times in my own life even when doing ministry that when we see it in our own lives that what the enemy is doing is he is disconnecting us from our influence as men the worst lie that has ever been told is that the man's responsibility is to go to work and to come home go to bed and start over you know, I, I've, I had to, I've had to pray in my life at times, you know, and I heard somebody say this one time, that the worst thing that we are, I'm sorry, the best thing that we can do when we pull in the driveway from work, because God has called us to lead the platoons of our lives, the best thing that we do is when we drive into the driveway, we pray, God, give me the strength and the courage, give me the willpower that I need, that when I walk through the door, that I kiss my wife and I tell her, hey, 
that I miss you, that I get down on the floor with my children and I play with them. I let them know I don't care. I'm not going to give the best of who I am to the place that I work at. I'm going to give the best of who I am to the family that's at home because they need to be led by me. They need to know me. They need to know I'm invested. They need to know that I'm leading them because my platoon needs me. Dads, granddads, our platoon needs us. But we can only do this when Christ is our king because we'll miss the problems. Because if we're indifferent about Jesus, then we'll point to anything but Jesus. If we're indifferent about who he is and what he's doing, then we'll point and depend on anything else. We'll find our peace that we're searching for because all of us want that. All of us want peace. All of us want to find these spaces and places in our life to settle. But we'll never be able to find peace. We'll never be able to see the problems. We'll never be able to have a strong army at home unless Christ is that king. Unless Christ is that king in our life. And, you know, as we move into this time where, you know, we just like to worship and praise God for who he is and the the band can come up and I'm finishing up. But the reality is, is that the peace and the problem are the main things that we need to be able to see. And the way that we see these things is when we acknowledge the right king. I'm a, I'm a poor king in my life. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bad king in a lot of ways. Some ways because I'm selfish at times. Some ways because I'm, I'm scared at times. Sometimes because I have doubts. I'm a bad king. And listen, I'm, I'm, I'm not your judge. But I would bet that you're probably a bad king too. You know, because the reality is we weren't created to be kings. We were created to be his children. We were created to be people who enjoyed his inheritance. We were enjoyed to be people who rested in the lordship of the king of kings, as he as king. You know, there's so many ways and things that we can find that make decent temporary kings. Problem is, is that they're easily conquered. This is the king that we celebrate this morning. The king that we'll celebrate next week. The king that will mean more and will carry you further than anything else in this world. That king. That king is the God of the universe that breathed life into your lungs. That king is the king of the universe that created us from dust. That king is the king of the universe who over and over and over again through the history of humanity has leaned into our space and plucked us out of utter destruction and placed us at places of promise. That is the king that we serve. That is the king that leads us. I'll end with this verse. Matthew 13, 15 talking about these people that have lost sight. It says, For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. What does he say at the end of that verse? You know, it's on the screen, obviously, but he says, I, I heal them. If they would see 
I would heal them. If they would know, then I would heal them. If they would hear, then I would heal them. That God is revealing something to us. Broken dad, broken mom, broken grandma, broken grandpa, broken friend, broken brother, broken student, broken son, broken daughter. I will for sin is a permanent barricade that eventually becomes an eternal prison of separation and isolation from anything good or holy. But what does God say? God says through Jesus Christ, He is King on the throne. So I will heal you. I will break down the barricades. I will let loose the chains. That I will destroy the enemy. And not only will He destroy the enemy, but what does the Bible say? That He will prepare a table our enemies almost mocking in their face like we're so not worried about you that we're going to eat dinner in front of you that is a God who is confident about his defeat of the enemy amen he will prepare a meal in front of him so church as you stand with us and as we worship I'd ask you to to bow your heads to take a moment to reflect as we enter into this space to, to praise and worship our holy God together consider these things. Father God, open my eyes to see the peace that you have for us. That we would ask and Father God, open our eyes to see the problems that are keeping us or hindering us. And that we would pray, Father God, help us to step confidently in the places that you've called us to. So let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you. God, in the midst of all our brokenness, God, in the midst of all that we desperately need as husbands, as wives, as grandmas, grandpas, employees, and employers. Father God, help us be reminded of the enemy's desire for everything that we have because everything we have is good in you and the enemy's desire is to destroy. Father God, first off, let us not miss the peace that passes all understanding that we can only find when Christ is King in our life. So Father God, let us welcome the right King in. Father God, help us to not miss the problem. Lord, the things that are allowing the enemy to build embankments, to build barricades, to build prisons that we constantly find ourselves in. God, that is cutting us off that is isolating us from the world around us, the, 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 the Christian brothers and the Christian fellowship, Lord, and the, the joy of worship and the joy of prayer and the joy of your word. Father God, help us see the problems that are building barricades around us to isolate us from the way you supply us with the things that we need. Father God, let us know that we'll only see the problems when we welcome the right king in. Father God, let us help us to welcome the right king in. Father God, this morning, let us worship you with confidence. Lord, let us see who you are and what you're doing, God, and let us rest in the glory and the beauty of who you are. Lord, we love you and thank you and praise you in Jesus' holy name.